Hey there, church. Um, so I am really excited to continue with our series in Revelation. Uh, Pastor David did a great job of getting us into the text, uh, showing us a picture of what the glorified Jesus looks like in chapter one, and then uh, unpacking the letters to the churches in chapters two and three. And, uh, and like he said, there are some really great praises in there that we can learn from and, and model ourselves after. And then there's some really good warnings in there that uh, I think if we're all honest, we will, we will take to heart and as a body, we will, we will see those and, and, and we'll, we'll want to grow from those. But, but as we continue in the text today, uh, we, we get to this, this moment where um, John is actually called to heaven in, in chapter 4. And he's given a picture now of what is going to be happening in the future. Here, look here at Revelation 4, uh, the, the first verse and a half there. It says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the Spirit. And so what we get here is this picture of, of God actually calling John into heaven, right? Whereas before what it would happen in, in the first three chapters of this, of this letter is John was having a vision of what was to come um, and, and, and of, of the glorified Jesus and of these letters to the churches that Jesus was sharing. But now in, in chapter four, John is actually brought in the spirit up to heaven. And there's something I, I want to pause and say to you right there that this that's happening for John um, is 100% real. Sometimes people get confused when we read this and instantly I was in the spirit because we don't necessarily understand what in the spirit means. But, but here's what I want you to know. Just because this is spiritual um, instead of physical doesn't make it any less real. And, and I think we, humanly speaking, um, we struggle with this sometimes. We struggle with, with understanding what is spiritual and what that really means. And, and, and it makes sense, right? We, we struggle with it because we're physical people. We are physically born into a physical world where we perceive physically the world around us, right? What we see, what we touch, taste, hear, uh, and, and all of that makes sense to us. And then we start talking about this other reality, this spiritual reality, which we haven't most of us haven't experienced. But the thing that I want you to understand is that just because we haven't experienced it, it is absolutely very important for us to understand that this is a real moment that's happening uh, with John. He is called in the spirit into heaven. And, and we go back to Revelation uh, 4, the first couple verses, and, and the voice says, this is God saying, look, I'm going to show you what's going to happen in the future. And so right away, we start to think about what's going to happen in the future. John is going to get a glimpse of the way it's going to go as God in finality judges evil and ushers in this kingdom age in fullness. And it's going to be a glorious picture. And that's what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks, right? But first, in chapter four, we get this picture of the worship that happens towards the Father in heaven. And it's important for us to focus on, on the worship of God that happens in heaven because, honestly, one of the things that we, especially um, our culture, our church, one of the things that we sometimes struggle with 
is true worship. Jesus says in John 4 that he's looking for, for people, that the Father is looking for people that will worship in spirit and in truth. And we're going to get a glimpse of what unadulterated worship is like uh, and the one that we worship. And so let's just, let's just jump in here and, and keep going. I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And so right away we get this picture. John, John is seeing this, and this is really taking place, right? So, so it's hard for him. We have to understand that what John is trying to describe to us is difficult because he's trying to describe God in all of his glory. And that's a difficult thing to do, right? Human words can't grasp what God is like. And, and so um, he, he's trying to describe this to us, what he's really actually seeing, because it's, it's not just a vision or a dream, but he is there in the spirit and he's seeing it happen. And, and the first thing he says is, I saw a throne and someone sitting on it. And, and what's so important about that and what becomes so, so critical for us to understand is that the one that's sitting on the throne is our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, Yahweh, the great I Am. And, and, and why that's so important for us to understand and for us to really get is this. Listen, I know it sounds trite. It's something that Christians throw out all the time, but it's just true. God is absolutely on the throne. And I know sometimes we, we, we say that and we kind of moan and, we, and groan and roll our eyes when we hear it because it's the thing we kind of throw out there when things are bad in the world. Like, oh, there's, there's tragedy, mass shootings, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, droughts, people are dying. And we're like, well, God's on the throne. And for people outside the faith, they could look at that and be like, that is so trite. Why would you say something like that? Why would that be an encouragement? But, but the reality is that John, and John is in the midst of turmoil, right? He, he is on the island of Patmos. He's been stranded. He's at a work camp. He is being actively punished. It is, it is bad where John is at. His brothers and sisters in Christ are being martyred and killed for their faith, right? But yet in all of this, right, in everything that's happening, in all that he's enduring, he sees this picture of God who is absolutely unequivocally on the throne. And, and that reality, if we really get what it means, then it just makes everything a little bit more calm. It doesn't ease the turmoil of the world. It, it doesn't ease all of the hardships that we go through, but what it does is it gives calmness to our spirit and it helps us endure. The fact that God is on his throne, even when things feel out of control, is what makes texts like Romans 8.28 make sense, right? We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. And again, that sounds so trite, like something bad happens and, and the Christians will say, oh, well, we, we know that God will use all things for good, like it's just this cliche that makes us feel better. But we see here with John and his vision and, and, and being in the spirit and seeing what's happening in heaven, we see this reality, right? Like I said, John is, is on this island and, and he is in turmoil and anguish and his life is hard and he's at the end of it. And, and there might be parts of him that wonder, how is God going to use this for good, right? But because we see God on his throne, promises like this one in Romans make sense. 
God will use this for good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. And, and we see that because on that island, John penned the letter, um, Revelation. And so we have encouragement, you know, thousands of years later, we have encouragement and we can understand what's going to be happening in the future and we can have faith and take comfort in all of that because God used that turmoil. Because God is on the throne, he used that turmoil that, that John was going through for good. And so that's the first thing. He says, I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and Carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And you know why this is so important here for us to understand is that, that, um, that basically John is saying, look, I, I can describe for you. I can't tell you what God is like necessarily. It's indescribable. Uh, but but he's, he's glowing and he's, he's like, like these emeralds, jasper and carnelian. And those are actually two gemstones that were on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Like these are significant symbols uh, of, of God. And then he says, this glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And there's got to be something comforting that to John as well. Like this, this picture of a rainbow, right? Because we know what, what the rainbow symbolizes, right? Back in, in Genesis, after the flood and God makes a promise to Noah and to all of mankind, look, I will never again, right? I'll bring judgment on the world again, but I will never again destroy the earth in this way right? In my judgment, I'll never do that again. And, and the rainbow is a symbol of that promise that God makes to people. And so it's an encouragement to John and, and it is to us for this future time that even though we're about to enter into this season of God's ultimate judgment, that he still is going to be merciful and gracious towards the earth and towards um, his people. And we keep going. And around the throne, 24 thrones surrounded him. And 24 elders sat on them, and all were clothed in white and had gold crowns um, on their heads. And um, those crowns, actually David talked about those um, last week. Those crowns we, we read about in, in chapter 2, those are victor's crowns. He says, if you remain faithful, even when facing death, this is Jesus talking to the church. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the victor's crowns. And now we see in this future time, God on his throne, surrounded by 24 thrones filled with 24 elders, wearing these crowns on their head, the victor's crowns, right? These are the people that, that endured. They persevered to the end, right? It's a picture of them in, in heaven. In fact, we're familiar with these thrones. Daniel saw these thrones, but he didn't see anybody in them. Daniel 7, 9 says, I watched as thrones were put in the place and the ancient one sat down to judge, right? His clothing was as white as snow. His hair was like purest wool. He sat on the fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, right? These thrones are set in place back when Daniel has this vision. But now as John's in heaven and he's in the moment, that future moment, he sees these thrones are now full of the 24 elders wearing the victor's crowns, telling us that they persevered and, and they endured to the end. And, and there's a lot of a question about who is sitting on those thrones. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you. We don't know. Uh, we know that they're actual people, right? They're not angels. We see the angelic beings later, um, but they're actual people. And, and why 24? Um, you know, we're, we're speculating, but there were 12 um, nations of Israel and there were 12 disciples. And so there's somehow that this picture of 24 
kind of tells us about this completeness of God's people that surround him on the throne, right? And, and they've got the victor's crowns because they endured. We keep going. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. And that is the sevenfold spirit of God. And so we see this picture, uh, the, the seven torches and the, and the burning flames and the sevenfold spirit of God. We're, we're, that's reference there to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Um, God, the spirit who is ever present around the throne. And, and, and there are flashes of lightning and, and peals and rumbles of thunder. And it paints this picture of, uh, of a coming storm. Judgment is coming in all of this. And John sees this picture of God on the throne and the elders around him and, and, and the Holy Spirit is, is there in his presence and, and judgment is coming. And around the throne were also, and this is one of the, the strangest parts in this text that, that we don't really understand, uh, but people have a lot of questions about. Around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion the second was like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings. And we finish eight, it tells us that the, the wings were covered with eyes both in and out. And so, um, one, it's this picture of God's creativity and his wisdom um, and, and all of that too. But but we wonder why these four beings, what does it mean and what does it have reference to? And and, and we'll tell you that, that biblical scholars aren't really sure. Uh, we know that, that this is a picture of God's wisdom and his creative ability. Um, I think I think there's a tie-in back to Genesis. Um, after the flood, when God makes this covenant with Noah and his family not to destroy the world again in that way, here's what he says. I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. Right? Well, with you and your descendants, that's, that's the creature with the face of a man. And all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds would be the face of the eagle, the livestock, the face of the calf, and all the wild animals would be represented with the face of the lion. And he finishes every living creature on earth. And so, so we have this, this picture of God's creative power in, in creating mankind and then everything else. Um, and, and we get that picture in Genesis 9. Right, but we see these four living beings around the throne, and, and the four living beings are there for one purpose, to worship God. We finish out the chapter, and here's what we find out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on uh, the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne, right? Those crowns, the, the victor's crowns, they don't keep them. They lay them before God Almighty. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. And so John starts us off here. He's taken in the spirit to heaven and, and, and he's going to tell us what he sees, which is how things are going to go in this future time. But before any of this unfolds, he gives us this picture of what he sees. And that's God sitting on his throne, surrounded by the elders and the living creatures who are giving praise and honor and glory 
uh, to God who created everything that he pleased. And then we shift. John's attention is moved from, from God who is sitting on his throne to God's hand and, and what's in it. Look at Revelation 5.1. Then, John says, after acknowledging what he sees and reveling in, in, in the God that he sees and the worship that's happening, he says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I want you to understand why this is such a powerful moment um, in, in the history of the world. And for us, this is to be happening in the future, right? This is the moment that Jesus talked about in, in Matthew 24 when he says, I don't know when, right? Only the Father in heaven knows, right, when the return will be, but it will happen in the future. This is that moment. Right? Jesus knows this is going to happen. He just doesn't know when. And John's witnessing this future moment, right? And he's seeing it happen. And there is a scroll in the right hand of, of God sitting on the throne, right? And, and, and there's writing on the scroll and it's sealed with seven seals. And here's what I want you to know about this as we get into to chapter five. Everything at this point now um, shifts where we start to understand that this is all about Jesus. And when he takes the scroll from the Father, he's, he's, ushering in the end of all things, right? He's ushering in, ushering in the judgment. He's ushering in the finality. He's ushering in um, the, the dealing with evil once and for all. It's all going to start. See, and something we know as Christians is that everything from the garden forward has all always been about Jesus. Everything has always been about Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus, all of it, to the point where he, he is um, born and, and he's sacrificed on the cross and he's resurrected to this future moment where he takes ownership of the world and deals with evil once and for all. Everything has always been about Jesus. And this moment, even though it's future for us, it's in the future. We don't know when it's coming, but we know with certainty. Listen to me, church. We know with certainty that this will come to pass. How do we know? Well, that's our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that, that faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we can't see. We have hope. And I don't mean like we have, we have like weak hope, right? Like every year I, I have hope that the Cubs are going to um, do well and win the World Series. I hope the Bears are, are going to play well and, and, and make it to the Super Bowl. That's, that's weak hope. That's hope that's rooted in just my own longings and desires. But, but Hebrews 11 one says, no, 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 no. Faith is about hope that's certain. It is the evidence for things you can't see. We haven't seen this. John has seen this moment in the spirit. We haven't seen this moment. Uh, we're getting a glimpse of it through John's writing, but we have hope it's certain. We know it will come to pass. And so we have confident hope. And the reason I want us to pause there for a second is because I don't want you to misunderstand what that hope is. That's faith. And we live in a world that does not value faith. They'll tell you that, that your faith is pointless, that it's hopeless, that it's blind, right? But, but we know better than that. We know that our faith is sure, and our faith isn't blind, but it's rooted in truth. 
and it's not pointless, but our faith serves our life and our future, right? And, and we know in faith that there is a day coming when Jesus will take the scroll from the Father and he will judge evil and wrong and suffering once and for all, and he will make all things new. And I tell you what, if you're like me, then you're really anxious for that. You're anxious for that moment because can I be honest with you? I am sick and tired of this place. And I don't mean that in some tragic, awful, I'm depressed kind of a way. But listen, I am tired of this world. It's broken. And in a broken world, broken world things happen, right? There is tragedy after tragedy. There is suffering and there is pain and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of evil. I'm tired of evil that seems like it's always winning. I'm over it. But because of this faith, faith that is certain about the things that we hope for, it's evidence of the things we can't see. Because of that faith, I can endure. Right? Because of that faith, even though it's broken, we can have confidence that there's a future time where it will all make sense. And because there's a God on the throne, we have confidence that all things will work together, even when I can't see it now. Right? God knows this. He's been telling us since the beginning that it's all about Jesus and that Jesus will ultimately fix it all. Since the garden, Abraham, David, Daniel, Isaiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, right? That everything they say, with everything they say and do, God is telling us, he's screaming at us, I know it's broken. I know it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, but I've got this. Basically saying, look, I'm rolling in the kingdom. I am going to make all things new. And that's what Jesus does, right? He comes back and through his perfect life and his death, he, he makes us new. When we choose to follow him, he saves us spiritually. And then we get this picture of this future time when he is going to come and he is going to set things right once and for all in the world. He'll deal with evil. And this moment, Revelation 5, is the moment that ushers this in. I saw the scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. We get this. That God has this scroll. This scroll, it's a legal document. You can picture parchment that's rolled up and it has seven seals, uh, blobs of wax that have been pressed um, with, with God's seal and are, are shut and can only be opened um, by the actual recipient. Um, and the writing is on the inside and on the outside because this is done. It's final. Right? And he's holding the title deed to the earth in his hand. And then I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And, and that right there, nobody in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. 
kind of just tells you it kind of flies in the face of some of the things that we hear in our world today. Like we live in a world where relativism is king. You know what? I'll believe what I want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. And, and as long as we're sincere, all roads lead to the same place. Kind of like in Finding Nemo, right? All drains lead to the ocean. The idea in our culture is that you can be a Christian if you want. I'll be a Buddhist over here. And this person can be a, a, a Mormon over here and a Muslim over here. And as long as everybody is sincere and does good, then at the end, we'll all meet together in heaven. But I, I'm reading this and it says, who is worthy to break the seals, to own the earth, to open the scroll, to take charge? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Right? It doesn't say there were a lot of ideas that were good or there were a lot of different people that could open the scroll. Right? In our world, we, 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 we are kind of taught that whatever you want to think is okay, but as we read the book of Revelation, we say, no, 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 it's much more restrictive than that. Right? It's not everybody can open the scroll. Everybody's way can be right, but there's one. Right? And we, we see here that, that at first no one is, is able, and because no one is able, John begins to weep bitterly. He says, I wept bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. And John knows what's going on. And with nobody open the scroll, he knows that, that we're stuck in this existence, that evil will win. And that if nobody is able to open the scroll, that pain and suffering will, will continue. And that will never be made right and whole. That the kingdom will never come in fullness. And so he weeps, longing for someone to be able to take charge. And then one of the 24 elders says to me, to John, stop weeping. Stop it. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll. And it's seven seals. See, at first it's like, this is the title deed to the earth. By taking this and opening it, you are saying, I have the power to deal with evil once and for all. And, and I can usher in God's kingdom in fullness. And I can make all things right. And no one was found worthy. And, and John begins to lose it because, because he doesn't want things to continue this way forever. He wants them to be made right. And as he starts to lose it, he starts to weep uncontrollably. One of the elders says, wait, there is hope. Because there is one who's able to open the scroll. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has won the victory. And he is worthy to open the scrolls and its seven sealed. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is none other than the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Christ has authority and virtue to open the scroll. He alone is the executor of the purposes of God. And he is the heir to the inheritance of the world. That is the position and the authority that he has. And, and, and I love as we get into to Revelation uh, 5, 6, what we're going to see how John describes Jesus. And it's this great picture of who Jesus Christ is as the second person of the Trinity, as God incarnate, God in flesh. And it's this great picture of his humanity and what he came to accomplish as a human being and his divinity and what will happen as a conquering king. And he says this, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out 
into every part of the earth. I mean, you're going to love this picture. The first thing John says is, I, I see the lamb, and, and he looked as if he'd been slaughtered, right? Because, because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, had been slaughtered. He had, he had been sacrificed for our sin, right? He, he had laid down his life, right? He was the perfect spotless lamb who laid down his life so that in death on the cross, he could take our sins onto himself. The fancy word there is, is propitiation. He was a propitiation for our sin. He took all of that onto himself as he hung on the cross, looking as if he'd been slaughtered and put in the grave, but he did not stay dead. This is the wonderful message of reconciliation that's available through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he conquered death. But the lamb who looked as if it had been slaughtered, look at this, is now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders, right? And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that sent out into every part of the earth. So, so he is now alive with the power of the Holy Spirit, standing in this divine place, right? It is this, it is this picture of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the Son of Man, right? Slain and risen and powerful. And, and, and John gives us a picture of both of these together and see why that's so important for us. Like the Jews, traditionally the, the Jews understand that the Messiah will be a conquering divine king. But they've always missed um, this part. Those that refuse to accept Jesus, they miss this part that, that, that the Messiah must first come as a suffering servant and would first die for the sins of his people and then be raised to life as a conquering king. And so they're missing who the Messiah is, right? But, but, but for Christians, many of us, we focus so hard on, on, on the suffering servant who dies for our sinfulness and is put in the grave and then burst forth. But, but we, we miss this idea that Jesus is also this conquering king. David talked about that back in Revelation 1, that picture of Jesus in all of his glory. And, and a lot of Christians, we miss this, right? That's why we think, oh, we believe in Jesus, so we're going to be saved. But we forget that he is a king that needs to be followed and submitted to. But John sees this clearly the lamb as if it had been slaughtered, but now standing in divine omnipotence and omniscience um, at the throne of God. And we, we keep going. Um, and, and then he acts. He steps forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. The title deed of the earth, what he earned through his death and his resurrection, his conquering of death through his death, we can live, right? Through his death, he conquers and becomes worthy to take the scroll. And he steps to the throne and he takes the scroll that God is giving him. And in doing so, he ushers in these last stages of what's to come. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this is a climactic moment when he breaks the seal and he opens the scroll. And we are really going to dig into that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at what happens when he breaks the seals of the scroll. And we're going to read about um, 
the, the judgments that fall on the earth as he breaks the seals uh, and, and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments. And we're going to get into all of that and the timeline and what that will look like to the best of our ability. But all of that is secondary to this moment. Right? Like sometimes we really want to focus on that stuff. We're like, oh, that's the more interesting thing is, is all of the judgments that'll come on the earth and, and, and the time it'll all take. And, and yes, that's good. And we're going to study it and we're going to learn what we can learn uh, in my limited um, understanding, what I can teach you. But don't miss this moment because this is the moment. This is the moment where no matter how we understand what's next, this is the moment where Jesus takes what is rightfully his, where he takes the title deed to the earth. And in taking it and opening it, he takes the, the, the judgment of evil, pain and suffering and tragedy, and, and he begins the work that will drive it out and abolish it and cast it away forever and ever and ever. This is the moment. And in response to him taking the scroll, all of heaven resounds in worship. First, it's, it's the 24 elders. You are worthy to take the scroll, talking to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll, break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered. Your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then the elders are joined by the living beings, and the word tells us by thousands and millions of angels singing this, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then the, the thousands of millions of angels and the living beings and the 24 elders are joined with every voice on the earth, under the earth and over the earth. And they sing this blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. God the Father and God the Son are worshipped together by every voice because God's plan has come to fruition and Jesus Christ is, by accepting the scroll and opening the scroll, is taking what He has earned through His sacrificial death and resurrection. This is the climactic moment. And I don't want you to miss it, right? Like I said, we're going to open the scroll and we'll see what happens. And, and, and here's the spoiler alert that I'll give you for that. Um, it is going to be bad for anybody living on the earth when these seals are opened, right? But, but what we need to understand now in this moment as, as, as we deal with this is we just need to be prepared. We need to be excited and look forward to that future day and we need to be prepared. I want you to look forward to that. Don't just know that this day is coming when Jesus will take the scroll. Like John has seen it. We're getting a glimpse of it. He's telling us about this experience and, and we know it's coming. We have faith that it's coming. Don't just know that it's coming though. Be excited about it's coming. Revel in the fact that it's coming. Long for it to come. Right? Because that's the day when Jesus will start to deal with evil in finality and tragedy and, and wipe away every tear and pain and suffering will start to be no more. And all of us have been holding on to grief and to things. All of us have been holding on to pain. There's these things that have happened in our lives, you know, where God says, I know it's broken, but I've got this. I'm rolling in the kingdom. This is that moment. 
Don't just know that it's coming, but look forward to it and be prepared. Be prepared. Like, like be prepared in the gospel. If you really are prepared, you will be a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? He has conquered death. Right? The word tells us that he has trampled death by death. By his death, he has defeated it once and for all. So we follow. I want to tell you, if you're watching this and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I promise you this day is coming. Unequivocally, I am certain. This is a hope that I am certain of. I'm certain of this thing, even though I can't see it. That day is coming. And I want to encourage you that you need to submit to and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you need to trust Him with your life and trust Him with your death. Be prepared. There's no time like now to respond. In fact, if you want to reach out to the church, um, I would love to have some dialogue with you. You can send us an email or, 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 or call me at the church at some point. I'd love to talk to you more about this. And if you're ready to make that decision, talk about what your next steps are. It's not complicated. To become a follower of Jesus, you don't need magic words. You don't need me sitting next to you. You don't need any ceremony. It's just simply a matter of you surrendering and saying, yeah, I know I'm wrong. I know I'm a sinner, right? I know Jesus died for me. And I know he conquered death and I am thanking him for paying for my sin and I am giving my life to him and I'm going to follow him. That's all it takes. I want you to be prepared. Look forward to that day and be prepared. Be prepared personally, but also be prepared evangelistically. Know. Know that what you do matters. So share your faith. Talk to your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Talk to them about your faith. Talk for them to them about the reason that you have hope and share it with them. Would you pray for me as we, we close the service? Once again, happy Mother's Day. Um, I, I'm just so, so thankful for you moms out there, uh, for mine uh, and my wife, uh, and, and for, for you out there watching as well. Uh, happy Mother's Day, and uh, just pray and ask God's blessing as we, we close this word here. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious and kind. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. Uh, we thank you for showing John a glimpse of what was going to happen so that he could encourage us in his writing. We thank you for being on the throne and for, for using all things uh, for the good of those that, that love you and are called according to your purposes. God, we thank you that you are victorious. We love you, we praise you, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.